Good evening, folks, and welcome back on this Saturday, the second day of December 2023. I'm your host, Mark Hall, and let's start off our look at what is really happening around the nation and the world with a story that's so full of symbolism it's almost hard to wrap your head around. The White House National Christmas Tree blew over for the first time in history this week. And I guess it begs the question, just how many different ways can the creator of the universe send a message? From there, we have to start off our summary of the rest of the news this week with a story that I hope at least every single person who's been listening to this show realizes you could have predicted, and indeed most of us probably did, because, and how many times do we have to see it, it was a lead pipe since it was coming, and besides, the evil minions of Satan even telegraphed their moves. And why do they really believe they can get away with the same or worse one more time? Because as one of my favorite authors, Robert A. Heinlein, once pointed out, never underestimate the power of human stupidity. People bought it before, they put on their masks, they socialists distance themselves, they allowed their businesses and even their children to be destroyed. They drank the Kool-Aid, or now it's the Bud Light, and they allowed themselves to be injected with a Zyklon B poison. Not once, not twice, but some of them, three, four, who knows how many times. And guess what, folks? Most will do it again. Maybe they aren't stupid enough to say it's COVID-23 this time, but nope, it'll be booga, 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 the Ebola pox or monkey pox variations, or maybe the new white lung syndrome. Right out of China again, and right at the same time of year, if you think back, that they pulled the same stunt, or at least something awfully similar, it certainly rhymes anyway, four years ago. Oh, and by the way, when I say a story, I actually mean several of them, all of them part of the same bigger picture from multiple sources. But that, too, is a big part of the picture. So, folks, here's my headline for what turns out to be a headline review. Mystery wave of white lung syndrome hits America. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Two of them, first from the Daily Mail, and now the first U.S. state records child pneumonia outbreak. Says one headline, mystery wave hits America. Ohio County records 142 child cases of white lung syndrome. Booga, 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 which they say meets the definition of an outbreak. Meanwhile, China and Europe. Europe grapple with crises. How about this one? Denmark, too, says a different headline. Same source. Battles a surge in the pneumonia-sparking fears in China. But it's not just the Bud Light pushers today. Even the conspiracy theorists have noticed. Who has rushed to consolidate more medical tyranny, says a piece from the all-news pipeline, and they've authorized a new emergency use of the COVID vax at the same time as the new mystery pneumonia is spreading. Now, in fairness, they're not drinking the Kool-Aid, just warning about what we all knew was coming. And while they go in a slightly different direction than your host does, they tend to focus on the WEF, Klaus Schwab, and those that want to make you eat bugs and die, which is the bigger picture long term. But that's as opposed to the near-term agenda that your host can't help but think just might be associated with the fact that, hey, how many kids got injected? How many are going to die anyway? Don't we need something really scary to attribute those deaths to rather than letting people realize what the actual cause almost certainly was? And if they can get their parents to give part B of that bioweapon, no, that's actually part C at this point, of that same bioweapon to the kids and kill them outright, so much the better, at least so far as true evil is concerned. 
And in case you're curious, yeah, I did check. There's absolutely no hint that any of this could possibly be associated with the last wave of Zyklon B injections. Some of you may have heard them called the COVID vaccine. And of course, they changed the definition of vaccine. They're not even remotely a vaccine, but they do reprogram your immune system. And as it turns out, ultimately destroy it. That is, if you don't die of myocarditis or some other heart issue first. Oh, yeah. And while we're on that subset of the same topic, how many more stories like this do we need to see? Official government data, which has now been analyzed by yet more people, reveals, shockingly say some, that people aged 18 to 49 who have received four doses of the Zyklon B not vaccine are over 300% more likely to die of any cause or all causes than unvaccinated people in the same age group. Do you see why we need a new scare? A new excuse? But when it comes to teenagers, yeah, they're about four times more likely to die of cancer than their uh, pure blood peers. And years from now, you can rest assured, if the world lasts that long, that those pure blood peers will be a lot more likely to reproduce, too. The London Telegraph is telling us about monkeypox and Ebola, too. Meanwhile, even Channel 9 local news in Denver says this. Denver Health, sick, has now administered its first shots of Ebola vaccines, becoming one of the first health sick systems in the U.S. to administer the newly approved Ebola vax called Erverbo. I can't help but think that's Italian for take this and you'll bleed out. The puff piece says breathlessly that a few medical employees at Denver Health made history Monday as some of the first people to receive the Ebola vaccine for preventative measures. Yeah, in case you haven't heard, but don't worry, you will. Ebola is a rare but deadly disease with a potential Fauci mouthwatering mortality rate of 70%. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Once confined largely to Africa, but who knows, folks, and they're not about to even hint at this. Maybe some of the people that are getting the live virus just might be able to shed a bit of it here. Oh, no, wait. <laughs> what am I suggesting? I'm sure the FDA would never approve anything without adequate testing. At least they wouldn't tell you the truth about it for maybe 75 years or so after it's all said and done. So let me say it again, because the point should be obvious. Well, it should have been obvious before we even saw these stories. They did it before. They got away with it. Can you even remotely be surprised that they intend to do it again? The bigger issue is, will you be fooled this time around? And if not, will you keep silent and let it happen? From there on, we go to another story that should surprise absolutely no one at this point. This comes from Representative Clay Higgins, Republican from Louisiana, and a Newsmax interview that he did with Chris Salcedo in which the lawmaker said that there were at least 200 undercover federal agents among the crowd at the U.S. Capitol on the infamous Fedsurrection Day of January 6, 2001, when the final solution to the Biden coup was implemented. The lawmaker further stated that some of the operatives were, quote, dressed as Trump supporters and were inside the Capitol prior to the alleged breach, when in fact various guards and other so-called law enforcement opened the door and invited people in for a tour. Said Representative Higgins, agents officially entered online chat groups, forums, and socialist media platforms where demonstrations against COVID regulations and objections to the rigged 2000 election were being discussed, he said. And, quote, when you track the text threads and the communications within those groups, 
and find the origins of suggestions of potential violence or active occupation of the Capitol on January the 6th, you'll find that those messages were led by members of the groups that ended up to be the FBI agents that had infiltrated the group, unquote. And you know what, folks? This is nothing new. Anybody that understands the history of other extremists and racist groups in the U.S. knows there was an old joke that literally dates back decades and decades that the only people paying Ku Klux Klan dues, and that's how the scumbags knew who they were, were FBI. And let's not forget they included some high-level senators with connections to Hitler and Biden, too, like the not-really-so-honorable Robert Byrd. Continued Clay Higgins, so the FBI's involvement was deep, not just on J6, but on the days and weeks and months prior. And earlier in November, notes a summary by Melinda Davies, Higgins pressed FBI Director and Chief Hormeister Christopher Wray over the presence of undercover agents and officers on January 6th. As you know, that lying scumbag has continually said, under oath and elsewhere, well, basically nothing that would confirm or deny the truth. And he even declined to say just how many agents they had in the crowd. While former Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund has indicated he was aware of at least 30, maybe 40 FBI operatives or DHS personnel there on that infamous day. Higgins even asked Ray about two buses that lacked identification and referred to them as ghost buses, a phrase used by so-called law enforcement, and said these buses are, quote, nefarious in nature and were filled with FBI informants dressed as Trump supporters deployed onto our Capitol on January 6th. And while Ray didn't contradict that assertion by Higgins, he did try to claim that no FBI agents were actually involved, quote, in the violence at the Capitol, unquote, on January 6th. (laughs) Well, it all depends on what the meaning of the word agents is. No, folks, they just incited it and then gave a little push here and there when it was necessary. After other agent provocateurs probably paid, and remember that means one way or another, not necessarily in currency, confidential human sources, their term is CHS, did the real dirty work. That way they have plausible deniability. And have we ever seen anything like that before? Davies goes on to say that court documents show that at least 20 FBI and ATF agents were embedded around the Capitol building on January 6th, and that revelation came in a footnote to a motion to dismiss submitted by the defense in U.S. v. Thomas Caldwell and U.S. v. Elmer Stewart Rhodes based on eyewitness testimony, unmirandized statements, and multiple 302 forms. It goes on to note that literally tens of thousands of private communications within the Oath Keepers organization have been provided, including encrypted messages specifically addressing preparation for the Fed's surrection on January 6th. Additionally, multiple 302s, witness statements, unmirandized statements, and etc. from multiple Oath Keeper-related witnesses and defendants have been reviewed. Bottom line, at least 20 FBI and ATF assets were embedded around the Capitol on January 6th, and furthermore, the discovery proved that Oath Keepers were being monitored and recorded prior to the date of the Fed's erection itself. Funny, you're never going to see those videos or reports either. You may recall this as well. On January 3rd, the FBI sent secret commandos to their farm site for what was called shoot-to-kill authority training for contingencies such as the Capitol riots days ahead of the event. And Newsweek reported thusly in January. 
that on, quote, Sunday, January 3rd, the heads of half a dozen elite government special ops teams went to Quantico, Virginia, to go over potential threats, contingencies, oot plans for the upcoming joint session of Congress. That meeting and the subsequent deployment of these shocking, I'm sorry, it says shadowy commandos on January 6th has never before been revealed, unquote. And if they had their way, folks, you still wouldn't know about it. <laughs> Although, to Facebook, Twitter, and most of the other affiliated public-private partners are going to do their best to make sure you still don't hear about it now. From there, on to another, gee, tell me something I didn't know story, this time courtesy of Life News. The Biden Fuhrer and those pulling his puppet strings want to effectively ban Christians and others who can read scripture from adopting children in the foster care system. Well, folks, the truth is a lot of folks who know what they're going to have to go through in order to adopt a child have already decided, I'd just as soon not sell my soul to uh, whatever it is that they're serving. Biden, though, says the piece wants to essentially ban Christians from adopting foster care children based on their religious beliefs and their opposition to their preferred radical LGBTQIA plus PB, etc. ideology. The Department of Achtung, Health and Human Services, has proposed, what else? A new rule that would prohibit families who do not support their satanic, anti-scriptural LGBTQ, etc. ideology from daring to think they might be allowed to care for foster children. But ain't it funny, folks? Hunter Biden and sex slavers, well, that's just fine. Don't you even dare suggest otherwise. And what, you might be asking, is the rationale for this latest rash of evil masquerading as wholesome? Because they claim the Social Security Act requires federally funded foster care agencies to provide, get this, safe and proper care for foster children. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. And that does not mean you, you cisgendered bitter clingers with your Bibles, your guns, your patriotism, and your constitutionally approved Bill of Rights BS. That is no longer allowed in the Biden-Fuhrer America. Because how can people that even remotely believe any such thing possibly provide a safe or nurturing home? At least nurturing them into the ideology that they want little skulls full of mush, as the late Rush Limbaugh once put it, to be indoctrinated into supporting. Don't kid yourself, folks. There very much is a state religion, and the Bible is clearly not welcome in it. Item. Henry Kissinger is dead at the age of 100. No comment. Draw your own conclusions. This next item is another related piece that I've actually seen at this point through multiple sources. It, too, is not surprising, but the fact that it is finally being talked about more or less openly outside of the usual socialist media suspects is important, even if the information will sound familiar. As Leah Holman puts it in his substack, have you ever dared to vote for Donald Trump? Have you ever posted a comment on any socialist media platform that was even remotely favorable towards Trump? Well, you're probably then, and you knew this, didn't you, on some FBI website or internal document. According to an October 4 report in Newsweek, the, quote, federal government believes that the threat of violence and major civil disturbance around the 2024 U.S. presidential election is so great that it has quietly created a new category of extremists. Now, I've talked about this before, but I guess it's nice to see even some of the leftist rags starting to say, hmm, have they gone a bit too far? No, folks, that's not the point here. And while that might be what you're supposed to think, stay tuned. This new category of extremists, they continue, that it seeks to track and to counter 
Donald Trump's army of MAGA followers. Notice the term army, says Holman. There's a sinister purpose behind that word. Big Brother, i.e. the government, in cooperation with its corporate public-private partners at Newsweek, are trying to paint a picture of an organized military force ready to go to war with Trump as its leader. And as a member, he says, of the conservative movement in America, I can tell you that it is, in fact, the most unorganized, disjointed, and fragmented movement in the country. It's not in any way monolithic, and as such poses no threat to the government or anyone else. But this is who, and here he makes a big mistake. He says the word our in this sentence, our government. And don't kid yourself, folks. This government has nothing to do with either being ours or even remotely constitutional in nature. Well, that government has targeted us for monitoring and tracking. They're not worried, he says, about the army of Chinese men of military age pouring over the open border at a rate of two to 4,000 per month under the Biden Fuhrer. They're not worried about Iranian sleeper cells. They're not worried about, you know, all the other names, the Taliban, Hamas, MS-13, the drug cartels. They give them weapons and then blame you for them. No, they're worried about American citizens on Team Trump who want to see their candidate in the White House or anybody else that will say no to Big Brother. And all of that is forbidden. It's just that there aren't any really other high-profile viable candidates, even remotely, saying something against the establishment regardless of which wing of the bird of prey they flap for. Here's a blurb, says uh, Holman from the article. The challenge for the Federal Bureau of Instigation, they spelled it wrong, the primary federal agency charged with law enforcement, what a crock, is to pursue and prevent what it calls domestic terrorism without direct reference to political parties or affiliations, even though we all know exactly which political party and communist affiliations they really are pushing for. And, says Holman, even though the vast majority of its current so-called anti-government investigations are of Trump supporters, according to classified data obtained by Newsweek, said a current FBI official who supposedly requested anonymity to discuss the highly sensitive internal matters, quote, the FBI is in an almost impossible position, unquote. Yeah, folks, how do you hide the fact that you were involved in a coup 60 years ago this month, and that's only the beginning of your perfidy? Or maybe better put, the beginning of the middle of your perfidy, while still pretending that somehow or other you are law enforcement. The FBI source told Newsweek, or so they say, that the agency, get this, must preserve the constitutional right of all Americans to campaign, to speak freely, and protest the government. (laughs) Did he really come right out and try to get anybody to actually believe that? as it holds its nose and begrudgingly grows through the emotions of, as Holman puts it, preserving any of our rights. The article, says Holman, and I guess you probably conclude your host would agree, is a laughing stock, pure propaganda, but they're not even good at creating propaganda because nobody with half of a working brain cell still believes the FBI has any respect for the Constitution or even aspects of the rule of law. That's the very same agency, after all, that threatened to investigate parents attending school board meetings and traditional Catholics who attend Latin masses. This is the same FBI that breaks down the doors of unarmed senior citizens like Roger Stone, he includes a picture, and arrested elderly women praying in front of abortion clinics, etc., etc., etc. By focusing on Trump and his MAGA supporters, the FBI official claimed the Bureau runs the risk of provoking the very anti-government activists that the terrorism agencies claim they hope to counter. And that, folks, is unmitigated, no, not laughingstock crap, but total BS. Why? Because, let's be clear here, 
I don't think there's any doubt about what they intend to do. And that is to provoke the very same civil war that they're going to claim through what Holman correctly describes as their crocodile tears. Oh, so unconvincingly that they hope to avoid by pushing and poking and provoking and jailing and terrorizing the very people that actually still believe in truth, justice in the American way, at least until the FBI completely puts a wooden stake in it. Some even grew up watching Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., and it took him a while to figure out that was a total crock way back then. Says Holman, yeah, they're still trying to at least pretend like they have constitutional boundaries within which they can conduct their Gestapo operations on American soil, violate households under cover of darkness, force their victims into black SUVs, and then hand them off in handcuffs and leg irons to the American Gulag, where they await their Soviet-style show trials. Their crime? Orwell had this right, too. These Americans are anti-government in their thinking. And says Holman, hmm, unless there's a new category of crime actually passed by Congress, and by the way, if they did, folks, it would be anti-constitutional, the thought crime, as it is rightfully called, and while they're working on it, they really don't have one in place yet, they got pre-crime, though, and speech crimes is no crime at all, because it is not yet a crime to be anti-government, especially, folks, when the government itself is anti-constitutional. And he puts it this way, any government that prosecutes any of its citizens for being so-called anti-government is by nature tyrannical because people living under a legitimate constitutional Republican form of government would have no reason to be anti-government. They would in fact think, hey, that's what the founders tried to put in place, a government that would try to secure the rights given to us by our creator. This Newsweek article, he concludes, was perhaps the most pathetic psyop disguised as a news article I've ever seen. Its purpose was not to inform, but to intimidate while presenting a facade of respect for constitutional rights that they truly, and you can see through the facade, detest. This is exactly, he said, why the FBI should never have been created in the first place. If we had a constitution, folks, they couldn't have been. Our founding fathers would have rolled over in their graves, no doubt that's true, at the very thought of a national police force or, as they put it, a standing army. Even if it started out with a mission that focused on legitimate federal crimes like foreign terrorists or, uh, can you imagine this, treason, who infiltrated America, any freedom-respecting constitutionalist could have predicted, with even a modicum of common sense, much less historical understanding, that it would one day be weaponized and turned against the domestic political opponents of the overpowered elite. That, he says, is why I am of the belief, and by the way, your host obviously concurs, that if we had a constitution, the FBI would never have been formed, but at this point should simply be defunded, permanently disbanded. And if you want to test a litmus test for any member of Congress or an administration or even the bureaucracy, if they don't get that, they got no business being anywhere close to the swamp or the center of power, such as it is, but it was never supposed to be. And by the way, you don't even need to be armed in order to be a totally, strictly investigative agency. Adds Leo Holman. Quick aside here, folks. Does anybody not want to laugh when they hear terms like Federal Bureau of Investigation? Can you recall any time of late when the FBI has actually gone in and done something like an investigation as opposed to, say, stealing computers, videos, and making damn sure that they were locked down so that they, especially if they were incriminating of those in power and pulling their strings, never saw the light of day? Why, remember what happened to those other videos out of Las Vegas that you never saw? <laughs> or what, you forgot? Yeah, that makes the point. 
if there was a real reason for an FBI, they could do the investigations, then turn that information over, as the Constitution intended, to state and local law enforcement, which could then make the decisions, if they weren't run by sorrow suck-ups, of whether or not to make arrests. As opposed to just saying, well, if they're far-left communists, they can do whatever they want. If they invade, they can do whatever they want. But if they dare to think there's a rule of law, well, throw the book at No, throw them in the gulag and throw away the key. Finally, says Holman, regular readers know I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. I turned against him when he rolled out the militarized vaccine program with an injection that wasn't even a vaccine and so forth and so on. And so he concludes, I'm done with Trump. I even think he could be a plant who's working for the other globalists. Allah, remember this, folks, Emmanuel Goldstein. And this is a great parallel from George Orwell's 1984. Big Brother was always after him. Turns out he was precisely what is now called controlled opposition. We'll close out the segment with an observation from Steve Kirsch via the Burning Platform and others summarizing what he called record-level data showing vaccine timing and death rate. Bottom line, you knew it, didn't you? There's no confusion any longer. He writes, the vaccines are unsafe and have killed, on average, about one person out of every 1,000 that gets duped into taking the Zyklon B. No state or county has ever released record-level public health data on any of these vaccines. So this is a first for a lot of reasons. And it comes from a whistleblower at the New Zealand Ministry of Health. Maybe it'll end up saving some lives this next time around, coming real soon, as you can guess, to a theater near you. And we'll be right back. Welcome back now to the second segment of the show for this evening. This is your host, Mark Hall. And in this one, I'm going to do something a bit different. It's been on my radar for quite a while now, but it's come to a head. And it involves several stories, all of which essentially point in the same direction. And that is that most of the world is being fed utter BS when it comes to so-called climate science. This one is authored by John Stadden via the DailySkeptic.org. It's also linked by sites like Zero Hedge. And it's entitled Three Graphs to Show That There Is No Climate Crisis. As the West, it begins fitfully weakens industrial civilization by trying to eliminate oil, coal, natural gas, and basically everything else that keeps a large number of people alive. And hey, folks, right there you've got a genuine clue as to what the real agenda here is. They want to eliminate energy sources. Well, at least for the peons anyway. And with it, population. The scientific basis for so-called net zero is based more on general agreement than it is actual hard data. So-called climate scientists nevertheless claim that they're optimistic about the progress that's being made in destroying society's carbon energy base and along with it, most of the billions of people that once inhabited a green planet. 
They want to fix that, too. There are, of course, criticisms of the idea that a carbon-induced apocalypse, largely supported by the so-called GCM, or General Circulation Models, there are lots of them out there, and most of them, folks, are bogus, because many of them have predicted a warming that hasn't even occurred yet, and an apocalypse that would have happened years ago if they were even close to correct. And ironically, some of us are old enough to remember when science actually meant that if a hypothesis was rejected by the data and by experiments and by everything else that the real world showed, you threw out the hypothesis and got yourself a new model. Well, not when there are billions, no, trillions of bucks at stake, and the only people that get funded are those that come up with the right answers, whether they're based on real science as it used to be known or not. And we're going to see that, folks, as we go through this. Just remember that if you hear the words consensus science, that means hoard out, bought and paid for. Whether you're talking Copernicus, Galileo, Einstein, or Max Planck, there's a consistent trend throughout human history. Real science tends to buck the consensus. And what I'm going to point out here is that the author is generally a little bit... uh, polite when it comes to saying what I'm going to say a bit more bluntly. I like that, though, because it makes the conclusions here, if nothing else, even a bit conservative. Conservative from the standpoint of scientific evidence, anyway. Says the author, there are just too many different GCMs with too many different parameters, and free parameters in particular, in other words, things that amount to fudge factors, as well as wildly divergent readings of historical climate records. As a matter of fact, I've talked about it before, we have seen a number of cases. Anybody remember East Anglia and the so-called hockey stick graph that, at least among people paying attention, is now pretty much synonymous with scientific fraud? Although, oh yeah, just like safe and effective COVID vaccines, few people on the payroll actually dare to say the emperor is not just naked, but killing folks. Although unlike January 6th, you can pretty well rest assured that nobody committing this kind of fraud is going to end up behind bars. The legal system tends to go with the flow, which in this case means billions of bucks. But if you search terms like East Anglia, hoax, and hockey stick graph, you'll find out relatively easily, even if Gulag will try to BS you otherwise... The basics of the story. Turns out there were periods in history that were warmer than today, and they predate industrial civilization and massive amounts of man-made or even cow fart, carbon dioxide, or other so-called greenhouse gases being injected into the atmosphere. A few decades back, you could find any number of scientific articles that refer to the medieval warm period, lasting from about A.D. 800 through the 1300s, which was followed later by the Little Ice Age from that period through 1900, and these are basically scientifically undisputed facts. You can read Charles Dickens, for example, to see what the climate looked like in London during his time, or ask yourself why the Vikings thought a place like Greenland deserved a name like that. Until, that is, the U.N. came along with their Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the infamous IPCC, which was created to officially work and produce the right answers, don't you know? They took a while, but they managed to do it. The Global Warming Issue, their first progress report back in 1990 on page 202, showed a graph in which the medieval warm period was portrayed as a whole lot warmer than even the present. But a couple years later... 1995, in fact, seeking to include carbon dioxide, booga, 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 as a cause of the warming, and we can guess why now, in hindsight, can't we? The IPCC report started with the little ice age, huh? In other words, start later so that your data looks 
different relative to a selected baseline, as they call it. You want things to look warmer? Well, just pick a starting base from a much colder time period. Isn't that clever? And it showed a long, slow period of increasing temperatures. That's what you get if you pick the right part in any repeating cycle, folks. And Chapter 8 of that scientific report actually stated, at least once upon a time, that, quote, no study to date has positively attributed all or part of the observed climate change to anthropogenic or man-made causes. But wait, interpolitics and megabucks, no gigabucks, which prevailed. The statement was removed from the final report and the non-scientific summary for policymakers, and guess what, that was the point all along, said instead, the balance of evidence suggests, the balance that you're going to read about anyway, that there is a discernible human influence on global climate. Isn't that convenient? And as they say, the rest is not only history, it's an attempt to rewrite it, and as Orwell pointed out, then control and even destroy the future. In hindsight, it's obvious that they're intending to push genocide. Although we've known it for a long time, if you read things like reports from the Club of Rome. Enter Michael Mann and his infamous hockey stick. A plot, or so they claim, of the past millennium's temperature rise showing the dramatic, yeah, unbelievable, if we've actually paid attention to science, influence of man-made global warming. And uh, a whole bunch of emails he exchanged with East Anglia that pretty much described the fraud. And when they got caught, uh-oh, now we've really got to do some uh, Orwellian history rewrite. And the elements of that fraud were manifold. First, as we've discussed, you have to disregard the medieval warm period and focus instead on the Little Ice Age, but certainly you don't want to call it that. It helps, too, if you can fudge the data, and in particular, only take a look at temperature trends in the northern hemisphere. Oh, yeah, and it helps to ignore other things that people like Michael Crichton have pointed out, in popular fiction even, like the heat island effect. If you collect temperature data from major cities before they get to be megalopoli and basically completely paved over, guess what tends to happen? Because concrete makes things warmer. And if the only data you've got comes from cities that look warmer once the concrete is all built up and the city grows out, guess what? A warming trend, whether it's true globally or not. And if the city is full of air conditioning units pumping heat from inside out, it looks worse still. How's that for science? You can also fudge the statistics, and this gets a lot of people's eyes to glaze over, but basically, it amounted to, as some put it, crudely grafting the surface temperature record from the 20th century onto pre-1900 tree ring records, which many pointed out were innately scientifically flawed. But who cares, remember? We already know the answer, we just need to get there. Oh, and your host's personal favorite, folks, supported by those damning emails, the statistical techniques employed by Mann and his colleagues shared in those emails suggested that their method can be used to artificially inflate or produce a hockey stick even from random noise data. How's that for rigging a conclusion? And in engineering, folks, honest engineering anyway, the technique is called filtering the data. So back to John Stodden's piece. Are the violent climate events that get so widely reported really more frequent, or is it just that they're being reported more vociferously? And how does weather actually relate to climate? The popular press, attempting to push the narrative, cries havoc and attempts to sow confusion. But the data, as he puts it, isn't quite so clear. And again, I say the author is putting things a bit politely here in order to make the point. Does the actual global level of carbon dioxide have a major effect on the temperature of the Earth? The standard answer, without scientific backup, is of course, oh yeah, it's got to. But there are, to put it mildly, lots of good reasons to doubt that. 
The looming economic costs, though, of the so-called net zero target are leading to, and it's about time, political pushback as people realize that, if they're still alive anyway, the intent is for them to freeze or starve. Nevertheless, the recent jury acquittal of nine Extinction Rebellion vandals, says the author, shows that a passionate belief in the imminent dangers of booga, 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 the CO2 apocalypse, isn't limited to just activists or even idiots or those that are paid to push the conclusions. The intent here, of course, is to propagandize everybody else who hasn't paid attention or doesn't understand bogus statistics to buy into something that is utterly destructive to their continued existence. Popular accounts of the climate emergency, says the author, rarely show quantitative data. Still, though, there are a number of widely available graphs that anyone can understand. And here, says the piece, are three of them, which suggest that the answer to the question about whether or not the man-made global warming climate crisis is in fact man-made is probably no. It's likely that beyond a certain point, carbon dioxide, and this is the real scientific consensus, folks, for those that understand things like physics and the concept of buffering, almost certainly has a relatively minor effect on planetary temperature. And remember, Mother Earth is fully capable of making carbon dioxide and other so-called greenhouse gases, regardless of what man does anyway, and throughout the history of the planet in much greater quantities, too. And with that on the table, let me add even a couple of things that the article doesn't have the time or space to talk about here, but at least I need to mention. One is the impact of the most important driver of all when it comes to global climate, and particularly warming. And that's a great big yellow ball some of you may have heard of that most of the IPCC would prefer to ignore, called the sun. Turns out the sun actually has cycles as well. You've probably heard about the 11-year sunspot cycle. There are actually longer cycles, like a 100- and 200-year cycle, and longer cycles still than that. And guess what? They tend to correlate with things like massive global warming and, yes, even ice ages. I've mentioned some of the excellent works and books by people like John L. Casey before. So the sun is fully capable of moving the temperature dramatically in both directions. Who could have thought it? Oh, yeah, one other thing. And these may even be correlated. Volcanism or volcanoes that spew not only greenhouse gases, but a whole lot of other things like ash into the atmosphere can result in dramatic climate change as well, usually on the cooling side of the equation. So on to the graphs themselves. The first one, he says, is controversial simply because the estimates of CO2 concentration and temperature before thermometers were widely available, i.e. 99.99% of the Earth's history, must be estimated indirectly. And here we get politics into the equation as well, as you probably understood, by proxies, things like ice cores, the aforementioned tree rings, and isotope measurements. Still, if this graph of global temperature versus CO2 concentration over the past 600 million years or so is even approximately valid, it shows a couple of things. According to one expert, the far right point on the graph shows that the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere today is actually the lowest in Earth's history, except for a couple of periods, one just following the end Permian extinction event a whole long time ago, and very early in the Panerozoic, about 550 million years ago. Number two, there is no correlation between the CO2 level and global temperature. When CO2 is high, temperature may be low or vice versa. Hmm. That's why we need to filter the data if we want to produce that hockey stick, don't you know? Was that a sarcastic comment from your host? You betcha. But if you're not skeptical, folks, you will be duped. Clearly, says the author, these conclusions are uh, difficult, but one thing is for sure. 
vertebrate life has flourished on Earth at CO2 concentrations that are much higher than today's. Oh, yeah, another thing is clear, too, folks, from a different field of scientific endeavor. Turns out that plants, because they need CO2 to live and produce photosynthesis, really like higher CO2 concentrations, and they tend to produce a very green, lush, almost Eden-like Earth. From there, we move on to the long-term historic record, where the CO2 temperature correlation is much clearer over a shorter time scale, maybe 800,000 or so years, as the next graph he includes claims to demonstrate, having to do with ice dome studies in Antarctica across that time period. But the two main conclusions are as follows. At this time scale, CO2 concentration and temperature seem to be correlated. CO2 and temperature go up and down together. But there's a problem because CO2 increases reliably lag behind increases in temperature. Huh? Seeming to indicate that it is temperature increases that cause the increase in CO2, perhaps for an obvious reason. As oceans heat up, and that turns out to be where most of the CO2 on the planet is stored, gases, including CO2, are expelled from the water. And when they cool, CO2 is absorbed from the atmosphere because warm water can hold less dissolved gas than cool water. And most of the CO2 on the planet, again, is stored in the oceans. And as you might expect, there are arguments, unscientific, but certainly bought and paid for as they may be, to claim that, oh, no, no, it's really the opposite of that. Why? Well, because you lay people wouldn't understand it anyway. Or at least those that seem to want you dead would have you believe. From there, on then to just one aspect of physics, and a final graph from a recent long paper by two physicists, William Wingarden of New York University in Toronto and William Happer at Princeton. The article considers just the basic physics of the so-called greenhouse effect, given the physical properties of air and the handful of low-concentration greenhouse gases, including CO2, nitrous oxide, and methane that it contains. And what it shows, folks, is a bell-shaped curve having to do with the amount of solar energy flux at different wavelengths radiated to space from an Earth with no atmosphere. And here the numbers depend on all kinds of complicated-sounding things, like the wavelength of the radiation, whether it's in the infrared or the visible light spectrum. And part of the problem is something that enables the waste stream lying press and the whores who manipulate bought-and-paid-for science to keep getting away with. An engineer would say a nonlinear relationship. Is something that should be obvious, but isn't, because most people tend to think linearly. If this causes this, then more of it causes more of that. And that is almost never the case in the real world. Except over what are, in the broader scheme of things, very narrow ranges. Examples literally abound. We just don't tend to focus on them. Here's one. A car with a bigger engine will go faster, right? Well, up until the point where it simply won't go any faster at all, no matter how hard you push on the throttle. It becomes nonlinear. You can double or quadruple or multiply by 10 the size of the engine, and it won't go all that much faster. There's, in fact, a diminishing return, and yes, it's nonlinear. As the author notes, at 400 parts per million, CO2 does seem to have a greenhouse effect, they show. Radiated energy is reduced in the range between 500 and 700 nanometers. That's in the infrared. But an increase to double that, 800 parts per million, has almost no additional effect. So that's the point. Doubling the standard concentration of carbon dioxide from 400 to 800 parts per million, and CO2 makes up a relatively small part of the atmosphere, folks. Even Wikipedia will tell you it's 0.04% or 421 parts per million, has almost no additional greenhouse effect. 
And if you've ever heard words, and I mentioned it already, like buffering, you're on the right track to understanding why the paranoia is pretty much BS. Take it together, says the author, these three bits of data should make anyone doubt that further increases in CO2 pose any kind of real environmental threat. Even if the Earth is warming, and that is very doubtful, and again, it's the sun that matters there more than anything else, it's unlikely, and he puts it politely, that CO2 is responsible. So, concludes John Stadden, it's time to quit panicking, at minimum. More importantly, folks, it's time to fight back and realize the intent here has nothing to do with saving the planet. It has to do with getting rid of you so that they can have the planet. From there, what I want to try to do is to see if I can't summarize in the remaining time here a number of the conclusions in actually two books by former NASA researcher John L. Casey. The first one, called Cold Sun, that I read well over a decade ago, was released all the way back in 2011. That was followed up by another book released in 2014 entitled Dark Winter, in which he summarized not only a bit more of the conclusions, but the actions that his group had taken to try and inform people in the United States government and elsewhere about exactly what was coming. As you might expect, folks, and as you've seen, there were political machinations involved, and as a result, the hell with the American people or the world or anything else that might interfere with the non-existent man-made global warming agenda, because we got a lot of people to kill, and if they die of famine or freeze to death as a result of what we, ha-ha, tricked them into ignoring until it was too late, well, so much the better. It's not like they don't have other mechanisms, from Zyklon B injections and other bioweapons to thermonuclear war to help that process along anyway. And essentially, Casey and a number of others to whom he gives proper credit have determined is there are longer solar cycles. I've literally referenced this on this program for years. There is what he calls a centennial cycle and a bicentennial cycle of about 206 years. There are longer cycles as well, and you can see them. And he does, in his book, document all of those dating back to the 1800s, something called the Dalton Minimum that you may have heard of, which had dramatic effects on world history. You may have studied them if you weren't public school educated of late, and which now, about 200 years later, we're starting to see again. And that is the point of the books. And that is part of the reason why he suspects that pretty soon now, global warming won't even be an issue, because people are going to ask, why, oh, why did you lie to us for so long? And in a nutshell, it goes like this. What he calls relational cycle theory demonstrates that these solar cycles dominate in their effect on Earth's climate, and about every 206 years, we see a major cold spell. And they last for quite a while. Casey spent some time talking about the Dalton Minimum back in the early 1800s and its historic effects. Fellow named Napoleon, for example, learned what cold could do to an invading force en route to Moscow. 1816 was called the year without a summer, and that seems to have been associated with an increase in volcanism or volcanic activity associated with these solar minimums as well. And Mount Tambora in Indonesia, one of the biggest eruptions in 2,000 years. And the cycle before that brought what's called the Maunder Minimum. But there were fewer people around in the United States, at least, to record it. Even so, you may have still heard about some rough winters in places like Massachusetts. How bad was it? Well, worse than any of us may have seen in our lifetimes, but that's likely to change soon. Which brings me to some of the other details in Casey's book, Dark Winter. Starting with this, early on in the book, where he says, Back in April and May of 2007, I became the first researcher in the United States to notify the White House, Congress, and the mainstream media, he said, all state governments and the public about the dangers of the new coming cold era. At that time, I also made several major specific predictions, and that's where things get interesting, folks, about the timing and character of this next climate era. And those involved the following issues, he said. Number one, the end of so-called global warming. 
Number two, solar hibernation, and that's the key, and historic reduction in the energy output of the sun that occurs every 206 years. And number three is directly associated with it, a long-term drop in the Earth's average temperature. That doesn't mean there won't be highs and lows, folks. It's just that the average will be lower, and there may even be other extremes associated with it, which is great if you intend to fool people about what's really going on. And what this means is that we're on the verge of the advent of the next climate change. And he predicts 20 to 30 years of deep and dangerously cold weather and the things that go with it, including political upheaval, crop failures, and even widespread famine. Does it begin to make sense why Big Brother is trying to get people to think bikinis instead of gas-powered heaters? John Casey notes his predictions didn't stop there. In May 2010, he stated that, Earthquakes and major volcanic eruptions of historic scale would also be associated with the solar minimum because those two have been observed historically and seem to be associated with solar activity. And just what did Casey predict starting over a decade ago that would be the time frame for this cold era? Well, approximately 2020 through 2045, with a bottom, he suggested, based on those cycles, between the year 2031 and 2037. In other words, we're just now starting to see it, folks, and we're nowhere close to the bottom yet. Damningly, he notes that when it comes to funding, back in early 2011, the U.S. budget from then-President Barack Hussein Obama, a.k.a. Barry Sotero et al., for the next fiscal year was released by the White House, and by one analyst estimate, it contained $2.6 billion of pre-Biden bucks devoted to global warming research in one form or another. Funding, noted Casey, for study of an anthropogenic global warming climate issue that simply doesn't exist. Yet, at the time of this book's publication, he said in 2014, not one government office and not one research dollar had been dedicated to the science and planning needed for the United States to be prepared for the only climate change that we can rationally expect, a long and potentially dangerous cold climate. Oh, yeah, and what's the Biden Fuhrer doing now? Trying to destroy the ability of people to heat their homes or to put gasoline in their cars or use coal-fired power plants or, for that matter, have anything that might burn or keep them warm or fertilize farms and harvest crops. During the cold spell and coming famine that Big Brother arguably knows is coming, but Americans are being lied to about, with one obvious purpose in mind. In fact, says Casey, looking at those cycles, the human race may not see the warmth that's been experienced by this generation and our recent ancestors for perhaps thousands of years. So I'll wrap up this special look today into uh, big lies and bogus science with some observations that Casey did make prior to the publication of this book in 2014, which included a possible shift, he said, in the political balance of power in the United States and might even end the reverence for the flawed greenhouse gas theory and the claim that man's insignificant output of industrial carbon dioxide somehow affects climate as a political tool. And ironically, folks, that's about the only thing he predicted that hasn't yet at least looked like it's right on track. But then again, consider the Fauci flu and the so-called COVID-19 vaccinations and how the gullible just have to keep on taking them, even though they don't work and even though they still get COVID over and over and over again until your immune system is destroyed and you die of turbo cancer or stroke or heart attack or fill in the blank. Why, you might not even last long enough to realize that non-existent man-made global warming is total, utter BS, and the real threat is cold winters that the world hasn't seen for, well, a couple of hundred years. So let me note, of course, that there are all kinds of problems, we've talked about many of them, that you're supposed to be afraid, be very afraid of. But the real issue is you're supposed to be distracted so that when the nasty stuff that you didn't expect was coming really does show up and turn out to be exactly opposite of what people expected... 
you can guess what the result is intended to be and why you need to be aware of it. 